Section 15 of A Scientific and Practical Treatise on American Football for Schools and Colleges by Henry L. Williams and Amos Alonzo Stagg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 15. Field Tactics Clever tactics on the football field depend, first of all, on the captain's possessing an accurate knowledge of the strength and weaknesses of his team, both in individual play and in team play. This can all be acquired during practice by carefully noting every play which is made, and giving thought to the strength of the individual men and the value of the play in its relation to the others both in regard to the perfection of execution and an intrinsic merit from a strategic point of view. It also depends upon the captain's observing as soon as he enters the field and throughout the game, the incidents of the day, the direction and force of the wind, the position of the sun, and the condition of every part of the field. All these points are of great importance in good generalship. Lastly, it depends upon the study which he makes of the way the opponents arrange themselves on the defense, as well as the style of their play when in possession of the ball. He must also seek to find out by trial which of his plays can be used most effectively. Having the knowledge of the first and second requisites for good generalship, the captain must immediately proceed to find out the weakness and strength of the opponent's defense, not by trying each play in turn and just noting its success, but by using the best tactics the occasion demands, and closely observing the result on each play. Every play known to be strong because of the ability to concentrate or mass the players at some part of the line, or for any other reason, should be tried at least two or three times early in the game in order to give it a fair test, that the captain may know which will be his most effective plays. It is a mistake to keep pounding away on two or three plays which give an advance of a few yards, just on that account, until after other reliable plays have been given a fair trial. In making this trial, the time should be well chosen, both as to position on the field and as to the number of the down and the previous loss or gain, if it is the second or third down. It often happens that a powerful play is discarded because in one or two trials it did not work well. The difficulty may have been in its imperfect execution or in a neglect of duty on the part of one man even, or it might result from the inability of one player to do his work because of circumstances or tactics on the part of his opponents which he could not overcome, but which, later on, he would discover a way to meet. By confining the tactics to a few plays which have proved successful for more or less gain, the captain limits his play very decidedly and clearly indicates his policy, thereby giving his opponents a knowledge which is invaluable in thwarting him. The result will be that all the available players upon the opposing team will be called from the appointed positions where they had been placed in order to meet the most varied style of plays, and stationed where they can render these particular plays most ineffective. 
the knowledge that the play will probably be one of a few, also gives every player on the defense a certainty of action which will make his opposition very much stronger. The uncertainty which comes from combating a variety of tactics weakens each man's defense considerably and puts him at his wit's end to discover what the play will be and how to meet it. It also makes him more liable to be blocked off and pocketed. Sometimes, to be sure, it is fine strategy to keep pounding away at some particular point or points in the line, in order to draw the attention wholly to this place and to draw the men away from other parts of the line in order to weaken it for a sudden attack. But this is quite different from the limited style of play so often used, and really, if well done, is a mark of clever generalship. The captain sometimes uses all his plays in succession simply because he has been accustomed to run through them in practice. This is poor tactics. If it has once been clearly proven that a certain play cannot for any reason be made, every clear-headed captain will realize that it is very poor policy to waste downs in the effort. A similar mistake sometimes grows out of giving the signals in practice. If the captain or quarterback in giving the signal is not careful, he will get into the way of unconsciously arranging the plays according to the law of association of ideas, one play following another in unvarying sequence. The principle of sequence in plays would not be fatal, and indeed would sometimes be very effective if the plays are well selected, but account should be taken of the physical capacity of the players the duties which they have just been called on to perform, and the right time and place on the field, in reference to the sidelines and nearness to the goal. The great advantage to be gained lies in having the sequence come in the form of a series which is perfectly learned, so that play after play shall be made in rapid succession. The series, however, should not consist of more than from four to six plays, as contingencies often arise which seriously injure their effectiveness. In any case, the series ought to be stopped if for any reason it is unwise to make the next play, or if the conditions allow a much better move. A simple signal will indicate that the series is to be stopped. The great virtue in series plays lies in the fact that a certain signal starts the series and each play can be made in the quickest manner, because the players all know what is coming next and are ready the instant the ball is in the center rusher's hands. Series plays are especially effective against the team which is slow in lining up. They are very valuable also in their moral effect, because of the rapidity and enthusiasm with which the plays are made. Under a varied style of play where many movements are well executed, the opposing team must exercise the greatest headwork and caution in its defense. If the other team has not already indicated its policy by clearly defining its plays, every one on the opposing eleven will be conscious of so much uncertainty as to what the play will be, that his attack through the line is likely to be cautious and therefore not strong, or else it is likely to be sufficiently daring to give the opponents a decided advantage in making their plays. When undue caution is exercised on the defense, its effect often is to make the players hesitating. This, when extending throughout the rush line, is fatal to a strong defensive game. 
a daring reckless defence is far more effective than the cautious defence which makes a rush line hesitate because of the moral effect on the other team if for no other reason and this leads us to consider the moral effect of certain tactics the three most effective styles of plays when successfully used are a kicking game when there are weak catchers behind the opposing line or when the latter are poorly positioned and plays and dashes through the center in mass or quick wedge plays. These three plays, in the order named, have the most disheartening effect on the opposing team, when the side having the ball has a long, accurate, and scientific kicker who is able to place his punts well, and also to regulate the height and twist which the ball shall take. Every football player knows the chances for a fatal misplay which hang on a kicked ball. First, because of the difficulty of judging it accurately if it be twisting in certain ways, second, because of its exceeding susceptibility to currents of air which makes its gyrations and deviations excessively perplexing, third, because of the nicety of final judgment required, even when the player is well under the ball, since its shape and elasticity make it necessary to allow for its full length and its smallest dimension at the same time, also for a quick rebound from the armor hands. The catcher must attend to all this in the face of a fierce line of rushers coming down on him at full speed, eager to tackle him or to seize the ball if he muffs or fumbles it. The moral effect of having uncertain catchers behind the line is very telling on the team. If all the hard, wearying work of the rushers and halfbacks to advance the ball forty or fifty yards is to be spoiled over and over by muffed punts, even though the ball is not lost to the other side, as it is likely sometimes to be in such cases, there is sure to be a diminution in effort in a short time on the part of the whole team. This comes imperceptibly at first, but comes just as surely, and ere long evinces itself in the more determined and successful efforts of the other team almost equally disheartening, if not fully so, is it to have runs made repeatedly around the ends, because the runs in that locality, if successful, are usually for long gains often resulting in touchdowns, and they arouse the greatest fears in the minds of all the players from a feeling of inability to stop them. The result is that every effort is centered on anticipating these end plays, and the rushers, instead of going through the line, wait to see if it is an end play, in which case they run out to the side to stop it. That very moment in which there is a hesitancy on the part of the guards and tackles in going through the line is a moment of triumph for the team with the ball, for it immediately gives them a decided advantage in that, while perhaps unable before to make progress through the center part of the line, they will now have two strong points of attack. The chances now are that the defense will grow weaker and weaker as the game advances, for unless the end runs are well stopped, the players will decrease their efforts somewhat and the tackling will become less and less daring and effective. It is hard to say which of these two styles of play really has the more discouraging effect on the opposite team. If the eleven which has the poor catchers back of their forwards are successful in making advance by rushing the ball, 
They have a vast deal to encourage them, even though now and then they lose it all through the muffing of their backs. The period in which they have the ball is one in which their minds are not conscious of the weakness of their own defense, but are completely taken up with the good work they are doing, and they are unanimous and buoyant in it. That period of success does much to keep up their spirits during the time when the other side has the ball, and their fears are so all-powerful. When a team is able to make frequent runs around the opponent's end, there is perhaps less to actually dishearten them than in the preceding case, for there is less fear of losing the ball. It can be gotten only through a failure to advance the five yards in its three trials, through a fumble, through a penalty imposed by the umpire, or through a kick. The latter will be tried probably only under extreme conditions where there has been a loss of yards, while in the kicking game mentioned above, the side not in possession of the ball always has the hope of securing it. That captain is not a good general who follows out the same tactics in each game, who, having perhaps worked out a system of plays which his men could best execute, attempts to apply this system in every game, regardless of the composition of the opposing eleven and their systems of defense and offense. The captain, in truth, has learned a good deal when he has learned what plays his team can best execute, and he has most valuable, though far from complete, information for conducting a wise campaign against the opposing eleven. He still has much need to exercise his generalship as to whether this point of attack should be assailed three or fifteen times, this place a few times, and this place not at all, or perhaps only once or twice for the sake of trial or strategy. Oftentimes, the rusher can give invaluable information to the captain as to his own ability to handle his opponent, where, for example, the opponent so places himself constantly as to render it an easy matter to get him out of the way for certain plays, although it is impossible to move him on other plays. This is especially true in handling a large man who stands constantly in the same way, as, for instance, well over to the side of his opponent. It would be comparatively easy to block such a man for opening up a hole in one direction, but almost impossible to shove him in the opposite way. Such information would furnish the captain valuable data on which to base certain tactics, and would inform him that he could doubtless make plays to one side of this man, and seldom, if ever, on the other side. It would be foolish, even if it were possible, to lay down a complete system of tactics which should be followed in a game. Indeed, the wonderful part of football is that it is a game which cannot be worked out by rule and learned by note. One play does not follow another in sequence, but only as the captain or commander of the day directs. What makes the game preeminently one requiring science and brains is that to be well played, the captain must use the utmost wisdom and strategy in directing the plays, and the players to a man must do their duty in executing them. Very many points of advantage and disadvantage must constantly be borne in mind, or else the best generalship and results cannot follow. It is far from true to say that the captain must simply take into account the strong and weak points of his opponent's play. Together with the incidents of the day and field, 
such as the direction of the sun and the condition of the grounds in each particular part of the field. He must also have regard for his men, selecting his plays with such wisdom as to secure the greatest economy of physical energy with the greatest result, so that no man nor men shall be overworked at any time of the game and thus be incapacitated. No captain is a good general who does not know the limitations and strength of his ground gainers, and who does not take this into account in directing the play. Men differ greatly in their power to repeat a performance quickly, essentially then, in their powers of endurance. Some men can do effective work only when in first-class condition, that is, when they have had a certain length of time to recover after each effort, they can be relied on for a good gain, if not a brilliant run. Then, there is a vast difference in the kind of play as to the drain on a man's strength. And runs, and runs in which a considerable distance is covered, or runs in which there is a good deal of dodging and struggling to get loose from tacklers, are the most taxing on the wind and strength. Most men can stand two or more dashes through the line in quick succession, or two or more mass and wedge plays where the runner does not run fast for a long distance before being tackled. But when a run has been made which has called for a vast deal of energy, the captain should not fail to notice it, and in calling the next two or three plays, choose such as do not ask for too much strength from this player. The star runner, as a rule, is the one who suffers most from overwork through injudicious leadership. This does not preclude the fact that there are occasions in the game when some player or players must be forced to draw heavily on a reserve fund of energy in order to secure a permanent advantage or to prevent disaster. It sometimes seems necessary when nearing the opponent's goal that some player be put to his supreme test of strength in order to secure points, and likewise when it is necessary to carry the ball away from one's own goal and there is only one man who is sure to meet the crisis, but these are in truth critical periods and are exceptions not to be mentioned in this connection. We know that it is sometimes considered clever tactics, when there are strong substitute players for certain positions, to work men in these positions to their utmost limit of service, and then have them get hurt in order to substitute a fresh man or men. If this be shrewd, it is at least not honest tactics. If a team is not capable of playing an uphill game, or is one which is strongly affected by success and repulse, or if the opposing eleven is one which is similarly influenced, the tactics should be those most likely produce the exultation of success on the one hand and the feeling of discouragement on the other. The play should be those which can be executed quickly, and which have a certainty of gain with little risk of loss, which combine the efforts of every man in the eleven sufficiently to make him feel that he has an important part in them, which bring the energies of the opposing eleven, particularly the rushers, to the severest test, taxing especially the wind and courage. It must always be remembered, as a point in tactics, that the side in possession of the ball has a great advantage especially if the other side is weak in defensive play, and that it requires a greater outlay in strength and wind to check plays than it does to make them. 
It is likewise true that the courage of a team may be measured by its promptness and determination in defense. If a team repeatedly and continuously comes up to the scrimmage, after being outwitted and outplayed, it has the true courage, the courage which would probably enable them to win if possessed of an equal degree of skill in team play. What style of game shall a team play? That depends on many contingencies. Setting aside for the time the incidents of the day, such as wind, rain, and sunlight, the soft, slippery, and rough places in the grounds, the up and down grades, not even taking into account the strength and weakness of the opponents and the contingencies which arise, let us consider solely the composition of the team and see if we can deduce any style of play which applies to teams made up of certain types of men. Without defining the makeup of the team, except on general terms, we see that when the rush line is strong and heavy, the chances are that they will be able to handle their opponents and make good openings for the dashes through the line. Plungers through the central part of the line will probably be the most effective if the center guards and tackles are large and strong men. If the backs are slow and heavy also, a center game will probably be the only kind they can play with success, and the result is that this will be the style of game adopted, not perhaps because the captain has analyzed the reasons for the ability of the backs to make advance in that place and their inability to circle the ends, for example, but just because that is the part of the line in which they can make their gains every time. Perhaps it will occur to him that those same backs can be so quickened in starting and running, and then so well guarded, that they will be able now and then to try an end play, or a tackle and end play successfully, and by so doing, strengthen that very center play. The chance for making a successful end play is increased where a center game is being played, because the ends will be likely to draw in somewhat to help the center. When the center men of the line are rather light, if the backs are heavy and slow, the advantage will still be in attacking the openings between the center and guards and between the guards and tackles, for, if the backs and ends mass on these places, as they can do quickly and powerfully, they can still force a few yards at a time, and now and then break through for considerable gain. When well massed, this can be played even against the strongest centers. All that the rush line will need to do is to hold their men momentarily until the backs get under headway, and the combination of so much weight and power will be sure to make advance when well directed. If it be remembered that the advantage is always with the side which has the ball, and if the players, though checked now and then, go into each play with undaunted courage, advance will surely be made. As a general rule, when a team has light, swift runners behind the line, they should lay the emphasis on plays around the end and between the ends and tackles. Not that they should confine themselves to those points of attack, but it would be foolish for a team composed of such material not to perfect the plays in these parts of the line, because of the ability of the backs to move quickly to these remoter places. Such men, too, are not so well built for the hard, plunging work in the center, and will probably stand less of it, and be less effective, than heavier backs. This, of course, depends in part on the build of the men, but in general it is true. 
but even if the backs are equally good in plunging into the line, it would be better policy to keep the line spread out, for no runner can make much gain through a close line. Swift drives through the line can be made frequently, and are usually very telling when the line, being spread out, is opened up for these little backs to come darting through. But if the backs in the central part of the rush line are both light, while those of the opponents are heavy, the end style of play must of necessity be depended on, or the opposing rushers will be able to resist the plunges. Furthermore, it will be exceedingly hard to make holes through the line, and in fact, even to hold their opponents long enough for the backs to get up to the line. The question of what shall be the proportion of end plays and plays between the ends and tackle to the plays through the other four openings in the line depends, of course, very largely on the backs. The composition of the rush line as to strength and skill, especially the center, guards, and tackles, also affects the proportion. On the ordinary college and preparatory school team, the relative effectiveness of an end game to a center game would be much smaller than where the teams are better trained, simply because the risks are larger, for while the defense against well-executed interference would be much weaker, the attack is also much weaker. Every end play and play between the tackles and end is attempted with a much greater risk from actual loss of ground, or with a loss of a down with no gain, than are the plays in the center. The reason is that the rushers are given time to break through the line while the runner is moving out to the point of attack, and unless well protected, he will not reach the opening. Further, this movement for a considerable distance is almost entirely sideways before an advance can be made, while in the plays in the central part of the line the rushes are made nearly straight forward, except when the rushers take the ball, and the runners scarcely ever fail to reach the line. The times when there is no gain whatever and when there is an actual loss are comparatively few, for the runner, catching the ball at full speed, is up to the line in an instant, and then it becomes a question how far he can advance beyond that point. Taking these elements of risk into account, it would seem that the proportion of plays at the end to plays through the line should not be larger than one to three, and oftentimes less, even where a team is able to use both styles effectively. The only occasion for a larger use of end plays than this would be when the runner seldom fails to reach the line, and is usually good for a gain. In that event, the large element of risk has been taken away, and the proportion of use should then depend on the relative amount of gain which the trials have shown can be secured from each with the least expenditure of energy. Right here it might be well to add that it requires more skillful generalship to know when to use an end play than when to make a play through the center. It is only occasionally that the ball is down so close to the sidelines that all four openings in the center are not available on account of running outside the line, while it is frequently the case that the ball is down near enough to the sideline to limit the end play to one side, that is, to two openings. Nor is this enlarged space on one side of the field sufficient compensation for the loss of the two points of attack, but it adds to the science of the game, as it requires more varied tactics and maneuvers. 
It is poor tactics to keep trying end plays when it has been clearly proven that it is not possible to make them and that there is a likelihood of a loss in the trial. If it seems best to try the end for the sake of keeping the opposing line spread out so that the center plays can be made more successfully, the most propitious times should be selected. It should never be on the second or third down, because the risk of losing the ball by failure to gain the requisite five yards would be entirely too great. There are times when an end play should not be used at all, or very rarely, on account of the risk involved, as, for example, when the ball is being carried out from under the goal where it has been forced by the opponents. Anywhere within the 15 or 20 yard line, it is much better to trust to bringing it slowly out a few yards or feet at a time, sufficient, perhaps, to secure only the requisite five yards in three trials. Beyond the 20 yard line, and up to the 35 yard, an end play should be tried only on the first down, or, in rare instances, on the second down, unless the risk of losing ground, and subsequently the ball, is worth taking. In such cases, the possession of a powerful punter behind the line, who could place the ball well out of dangerous territory if necessary, might be a sufficient reason for attempting a long kick down the field. It does not seem, however, that it is necessary to run any risk of losing the ball if there is good reason for not playing a kicking game, for there will be ample chance to try an end play on the first down. Mistakes in generalship are frequently made right along this line in nearly every game which is played, an end run being sometimes tried on the third down when there is less than a yard to gain. Better gain the yard or two by the surest ground-gaining play, and then try an end run on the very next. When inside the opponent's 25-yard line, the greatest skill must also be used, and the aim should be to get the requisite five yards by the most reliable tactics. Plays which risk the loss of ground and the ball should be sparingly used, and every caution and strategy be exercised to place the ball across the line. Nor should there be less prudence because a team has a good drop kicker. The proportion of goals secured from drop kicks is not more than one in every four or five attempts with the best kickers in America, and the most certain way to score will be to strain every nerve to place the ball across the line by steadfastly holding the ball and using the drop kick only as a last resource. Every now and then a point is lost unnecessarily when the ball is in the position of a team under its own goal. It is judged not wise to kick. Perhaps the wind is strong in the opposite direction, and there is no reliable punter, or perhaps it would simply give the opponents a fair catch from which to make a try for goal if kicked. The captain also realizes that if the opponent secure the ball, they will force it over. Two downs may already have been used up and ground lost in vain attempts to advance the ball by running. There seems to be no other alternative, and so another trial is made, but without avail, whereupon the ball goes to the other side. Under these circumstances, it would be well for the captain to remember that by making a safety touchdown and allowing the opponents to score two, he could have brought the ball out to the 25-yard line and prevented a probable six points. The mistake is often made of frequently using end plays when the ground is slippery and soft from rain. 
nothing can be more foolish unless the aim is to get the ball on firmer ground for with insecure footing it is impossible to start quickly run fast or turn and dodge quickly this makes it easy also for the opposing eleven to stop the runner and nearly always with a loss of ground the same is true in a measure when the ground is soft or very sandy it is comparatively hard to make end plays even when there are no unfavorable conditions when the ground is firm and level he is a wise general therefore who notes the field carefully knowing where all the soft and slippery and rough places are as well as where the good ground is and then keeps them in mind throughout the game and makes his moves wisely in reference to them few captains take the field sufficiently into account in directing the plays so that the greatest advantage can be secured by avoiding the hindrances as much as possible again and again unsuccessful trials to advance have been made in muddy places when with one well-planned move the ball could have been placed on solid ground with little or no sacrifice and a vast advantage secured it is usually worth the loss of two or three yards and oftentimes more to make an end play in order to give a better footing to the backs and the rushers for putting the ball into play for handling it for making holes and for starting running and dodging when the ground is very slippery all plays which cause the runner to move a considerable distance sideways and across the field before turning to advance and all plays requiring a sudden change in direction whether when under strong headway or not are hard to gain ground on and therefore must be used with great judgment equally hard to make are the plays in which the tackle and guard and end carry the ball around for a run through one of the openings on the opposite side of the line there is not however the chance for so much loss of ground in these plays as usually played that there is in a run out to the end by the half-backs because the former run closer to the line and the play is not so quickly perceived it naturally follows then from what has been said that those plays which send the runner directly forward those in which the impetus from the start is more forward than sideways those in which the runner does not have far to run before he strikes the opening and those in which he can get the greatest protection and assistance quickly are the plays to be relied on when the ground is soft sandy or slippery in bringing the ball in from the sidelines the privilege is given of having it down anywhere from five to fifteen yards from that line this option of ten yards should be valuable in determining the tactics to be used next too often is it the habit for the captain to shout out bring it in fifteen whether the fifteen would carry them into a mud hole or whether there was a positive advantage in operating from a nearer point to the sideline by avoiding the usual custom of an end run and sending the runner through on the other side generally the fifteen-yard point is the best place to have the ball down but not always the ten-yard point has decided advantages in making certain sideline plays because the opponents will reason that the chances are in favor of an end play being attempted and will draw one or two men away to strengthen their defense in that quarter these they will feel that they can well spare from that side without very apparently weakening the defense because they are protected from long runs by the sideline 
the side-line does not enter into the consideration and field tactics as much as it should. As a rule, it is considered a misfortune when the ball is down within less than ten yards of this boundary line, because it gives the opponents a good chance to anticipate the play, which is likely to be a run around the other end. The free men who are behind the rushers nearest the sideline rarely fail to move over as far as the center rusher. This leaves the defense of that part wholly to the rushers, supported by the sidelines, and is the best situation possible for making certain plays. Long runs, however, cannot be expected, and the captain must be contented to work steadily up the field by short gains. After several dashes into the line of this kind, an end run suddenly carried into execution may have considerable chance for success. This suggests the thought that it is possible to use the sideline helpfully when the ball is down very near it, and when it is impossible to make any strong plays because of the limitations which must be met in such a situation. At such a time, instead of attempting to make a run out towards the end, or tackle, which will be expected, the play should often be straightforward or on the side toward the boundary line, until the runner is finally pushed over the line and has the privilege of bringing the ball into a more favorable position from which to operate. Furthermore, the position near the sideline can be made more useful in working tricks than a point nearer the center of the field, for reasons which are evident. There is no question that kicking the ball has not entered into the tactics of football as largely as its possibilities would warrant. There are many reasons for this. First, there is only here and there a team which has a reliable kicker. Punting and drop-kicking are practiced by a few only, and, for the most part, not intelligently and successfully. It is a science with several points of skill to be acquired. Second, many teams have an uncertain punter who does not himself know exactly where the ball will go, whether far down the field or just over the rush line, along the ground or to one side, and so place such little confidence in the value of kicking under so great a risk that they will usually trust to a run, even on the third down, if the distance which they have to gain is not too great. Third, in all but a few leading colleges, when the teams are evenly matched, the question of points is largely a question of which side has the ball. The offensive game is much better developed than the defensive game, and it is not infrequent for one team to carry the ball from one end of the field to the other without losing it. Under these circumstances, the necessity for kicking is seldom felt, and they would rather take the risk of not gaining the requisite number of yards than release their right to the ball by an uncertain kick. Fourth, it is a fact that most punters cannot kick accurately if forced to punt quickly. They are, therefore, compelled to stand so far back of the rush line that the value of their punt is decreased by several yards, or else they run the risk both of a poor punt and of having it stopped by the opposing rushers who break through the line. No better proof of the value of a good punter behind the line is needed than to see a game in which one side is visibly weaker than the other in its power to advance the ball by running, but which, possessing a strong punter, is able to keep its opponents in check. Frequent punts are doubly effective when the opposite side is without a good kicker, 
or is not accustomed to a kicking game. The worth of an accurate kicker is magnified very much when there is a wind in his favor. Comparatively few games are played without a wind to help or interfere, according as it is favorable to one side or the other. When the wind is in the favor of one side, they should be able to use it to the greatest advantage. The captain should be alive to its value and make it a powerful factor in his tactics. It would then be a question whether it would not be wise to kick the ball just as soon as it was secured, provided, of course, it was not so near the opponent's goal that it would be wiser to hold the ball and attempt to rush it over. Certain it is that a side should never fail to kick on the third down, except on account of the liability of kicking the ball over the goal line when inside of the 25-yard line, or because so close to the goal line that it is worth taking the risk of losing the ball and making a supreme effort to get it over. When there is danger of the ball being kicked across the goal line, a clever punter will usually aim to kick the ball across the sideline into the touch as near the goal line as possible. This is intentional, and is quite different from the juvenile efforts which do not take the wind or position into account when punting from near the sideline and sends the ball outside, only a few yards away. It is sometimes good tactics on the third down, when there is considerable doubt whether the required advance can be made, to have the full back kick the ball across the sideline with no intent perhaps of a gain in ground, while giving the opposing team technically an equal chance, it is wholly with the purpose of having the end rusher secure the ball, which will be upon the first down. The kick must be well placed, of course, and must not be so much forward that there will be great risk of the opponent securing the ball, and also not so far ahead that the fullback cannot put his men on side easily. The end man on that side must also know of the fullback's intention and place himself well over toward the sideline. Such a kick cannot be attempted safely when the fullback is not able to place his punts with great accuracy. The occasions when the use of such tactics would be wise might be when the side in possession of the ball was able to make good advances by running but had lost ground, perhaps through a misplay, or when they had the ball inside their opponent's 25-yard line and were not in a good position to try a drop kick, or when the risk of making the required gain by running would be too great. Right here would come in the question of a drop kick on the third down when inside the 25-yard line and in fair position to make the trial. It is safe to say that, in general, on the third down, this should be the play called for. It is for the captain to decide whether the trial is worth the making, whether the nearness and angle to the goal, and the quickness and skill of the kicker warrant a drop kick in preference to the chances of making a further advance by running. If a run is attempted without gain, the ball will be down where it is for the other side. When the kick is made on the other hand, there will be a possibility of having the ball stopped by the opposing rushers and a run made up the field, or, if the goal is missed, the opposing team will be allowed to bring the ball out to the 25-yard line. The captain must weigh all these possibilities before making his decision. The great advantage in the wind does not consist alone in the increased distance the ball can be propelled, but also in the increased likelihood that someone upon the side which kicked will again secure the ball on a muff or fumble. 
The wind has added to the problem of the player who attempts to catch the ball, these points of difficulty. Greater distance covered by the ball, an increased speed, and a greater probability that the ball will suddenly veer to one side or the other from the line of direction. The increased advantage of a favoring wind is in direct proportion to the strength of the wind. If the wind is very strong, the side which does not have its assistance is severely handicapped, and for the time is not able to do any effective kicking. Even with the best punters, it is impossible to drive the ball far in the face of a strong wind, and then the kick must be low, or the wind is likely to blow it back near the spot from which it was kicked. On the other hand, when kicking for distance with the wind, it is usually better to kick the ball high, in order that the wind may affect it more powerfully during the larger interval of time in rising and falling. There is also an economic reason for kicking the ball whenever it can be wisely done. It is a good way to rest the backs in order to save them for the supreme effort of carrying the ball across the line. For, if the ball has been carried for a considerable distance, they will be likely to be somewhat fatigued as they approach the goal line, and they will be weakest where and when the opposing side always puts in their most determined and desperate resistance. It is a severe test of a team's courage to bear up against a kicking game in the face of a strong wind, for, even if they are able to make good gains in return by running, the players are constantly fearing a slip or fumble, which will give the ball back to the other side only to have it returned with all the chances of a misplay, if not a gain in ground. The effect of the wind also is to make the side against it think they are working very much harder than their opponents just to hold their own. There is no question as to the value of having every member of the team able to run with the ball when it is possible and wise. The more varied the style of play, provided it is strong, or is likely to be successful because unlooked for, the more powerful would be the plan of attack and the less effective the defense. This is true for two reasons. First, it keeps the opposing team constantly guessing as to what the play will be, and enables the side with the ball to secure advantages through the variety of its play. Second, it distributes the labor and secures the advantage of fresh strength while it rests the main ground gainers. For these reasons, then, it is well worth the while to run the guards, tackles, and ends, although these are not in as advantageous positions for gaining ground as are the halfbacks and fullback. The most valuable of the three rush-line positions for ground gaining is the tackle, because from that position the runner can get under sufficient speed to carry him forward against opposition, and he can also secure the most protection and help. The run also can be made in the quickest time and without being immediately noticed. The end position, when the end plays behind the line and near the tackle, comes next in value of the line positions for running with the ball, because of the large number of interferers ahead. If rightly played by a fast runner, the end will be able to make good advances between the tackle and the end, and even around the end on the other side. The guard is in the hardest rush-line position for advancing the ball, 
because it is impossible for him to get under speed when making a quick turn around the quarterback, and on the other hand, he cannot afford to run out to the end, because he would be sure to be tackled whether he ran close to the line with little interference, or ran farther back with better interference, but with greater risk of lost ground. End of section 15